0: Štan an indó askeige e
1: Táim imíchttaí e dhéhsachcht ar end of chacht a máchan seo gur féidir é chor iúigh ceart lena
0: fis Turmi. ara igornamion
1: a gin fracht
0: Shachtin. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined
1: Today on the Indo-Daily, one Irish doctor on his extraordinary career in frontline medicine in Ireland and why he's written a book about it. I'm Siobhan McGuire and joining me today is Dr Chris Luke, an emergency physician for over 35 years in Ireland, the UK and Australia. Chris's new memoir, Life in Trauma, takes us on a a journey from his early years growing up in an orphanage through to becoming one of the leading physicians in the country. Chris, thank you so much for, for joining me. And I had the pleasure of reading your book over the Christmas and it's really informative in terms of the the medical aspects, but it would be kind of remiss of us not to kind of be guided by your own incredible story. Chris, can we start from the very beginning with your childhood, please? Your first few years were in an orphanage and what do you remember about it?
0: Hi Siobhan and thank you so much for for having me on. I suppose I've sort of tried to suppress the memories of the orphanage that I started life in um, for for most of my life and much of the the sort of recollection comes from people like Una Hayes who was a kind of surrogate mother. Uh, My own mother was a a single mother who became pregnant in the late 50s in Dublin and um, I was taken to London to, to be born you know out of sight and out of mind um, because my father would have been a relatively well-known person uh, in 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 Dublin in the in the 1950s. And basically, after I came back, my mother went to live with a friend in Stillorgan and Kilmacud in particular and gave me to a local woman uh, when I was about two weeks old to to look after her, to look after me, rather. And I gathered that that didn't work out. So in the end, I was put into the orphanage in St. Philomena's in in Kilmacud when I was about six months of age. And I stayed there more or less until I was about six or seven. The details are a bit vague because my mother never talked about the the, the the period in which I was in the orphanage. I think it, it caused her too much pain. Um, and after I came out of the orphanage, I was put into a school in, 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 in Bullsbridge, St Conrad's College, which was the sort of perfect place for a, a quirky uh, kid like me. Uh, basically, I was I was effectively an only child and obviously a bit nervous uh, and, and anxious after spending four or five years I, I, in an orphanage. Now, as far as I know, I was taken in and out, as many children were. Uh, the, the truth was that uh, many of the orphanages in in Ireland in those days weren't, in fact, strictly orphanages. They were basically residential institutions for unmarried mothers and their children. Uh, and we all know sort of what went on there. Uh, St. Philomena's, I'm afraid, had a terrible reputation for for brutality uh, and unkindness to, to, to children and um, you know, I, I think I was blessed, according to Una, I was blessed in that there was a, a young nun who took a fancy to me uh, and minded me very, very carefully uh, until I left. And apparently she also left the order uh, when I was taken out of, of the orphanage when I was about six and a half.
1: And in relation to, to your mother, I mean, regardless of the start you had in life, you have had an incredible relationship with her.
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean notwithstanding the difficulties we had together, we were kind of a a, a duet. We had a duet throughout our lives. She she died... A couple of years ago at the age of ninety nine and three quarters. And although we had a fairly rocky first 10 to 15 years, uh, we, we were very much reconciled in the end. And she had come to live close to me here in Cork uh, for the last 10 years of her, her life. And we were we had become very, very close. I mean, basically, my mother was um, my father's secretary. So there was this sort of um, extramarital affair. My father already had six children and lived in the south side of, of, of Dublin. My mother came from 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 Renla and basically it was, I suppose, a social calamity when she fell pregnant. Um, she was whisked off, as I say, to have me, you know, in, in 1959 in London. And then I was, co- you know, quietly brought back to, to Dublin. She continued to work as a single working mother uh, in, in the city centre in Guinness. And um, you know, as I say, I was put into an, into the so-called orphanage in St. Philomena's because she, she couldn't manage otherwise. But I think as soon as she could do, she took me out of the orphanage. She'd bought a house quite close to the to, to St. Philomena's uh, in Stillorgan in 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 the Merville estate. And we had, I suppose, we began a, a sort of semi-normal existence in the in the second half of the nineteen sixties.
1: Can you talk to me about the getting into medicine, because this is the crux of your career, the, the crux of the trauma that you reference in the title of your book. Why did you decide on, on medicine?
0: In the first chapter of the book, I describe how I discovered that I was, uh, you know, an, an illegitimate child and things weren't quite as the, as they seemed. Truth to tell... I sort of abreacted after that, and within a year or two, uh, I'd become really a, a very stroppy, turbulent teenager. I hitched around Europe with friends, and you know, was in Amsterdam and up and down to, to Spain. And uh, I mean, and I had become a sort of party animal. I mean, basically, a sort of middle class tearaway kid. But I was also very bookish, and I uh, and I had you know read a lot of books about medics, and I was a- a- addicted to MASH, the famous comedy uh, medical program about you know uh, the medics in the front line in korea and basically i got enough points in the leaving cert to do either law or medicine and in fact i matriculated into law in trinity and i was offered a place in in medicine in ucd and i agonized over the decisions but eventually i think based on my own difficulties and i suppose my mother's very basic values of social justice and kind. My mother was a was you know aside from all the the difficulties she, she experienced, she was a a, a wonderfully charitable, kindly, uh, and frankly brilliant woman. Uh, I mean, I, I think without her strategic planning, I, I would have been a, a basket case. So I suppose I, I came into medicine. I eventually opted to do a, for a career in medicine because. It, I suppose it appealed more to to the values that I had learned from her and her her social circle. You know, many of them had come from the inner city in Dublin. Her own mother had come from the tenements. And I I always had realised how lucky I had been to have been, in a sense, rescued from the horrors of an orphanage uh, by a very, very... independent uh, uh, and, I suppose, rebellious woman and her friends. And, you know, my mother was one of the, I suppose, the, 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 the second wave feminists of, of the of the 60s and 70s. Um, so I basically, I suppose I was driven into medicine by, by my mother and her values and the values of her, her, her community.
1: I liked that you referenced that you were quite bookish because um, I would say you have to be extremely smart and intelligent to study medicine and have the career that you actually- actually had.
0: Well, you know, Sean, I was very blessed because I was quite a winsome little fellow which is, as I say, which is possibly why the the young nun, uh, you know, fell in love with me and was a maternal figure in in the orphanage, you know, so, as, as legend has it. And I was also quite precocious. I mean, I I spent a, many many hours every week on my own in the house. My my house the house was full of music and full of books, but it was also empty. My, my mother wasn't in. It, it was just me and the cats. And so I devoured all the books that my mother had read. And we went to the library every Saturday. So I was very bookish. And I think also the fact that I was being Farmed around lots of houses, and I was I was very precocious socially. So I was very comfortable chatting to adults. And in fact, my my my, my friends in school always remarked on this how I would I I chat to anybody at a party, and I was always wandering off with total strangers and had become best friends within you know within a matter of an hour or so with, with complete strangers. Uh, so I was very, as I say, very socially precocious uh, in by, by my by my mid-teens. And I think I I fitted into medicine very well because again I, I'm you know enormously curious i suppose i come essentially from a journalistic background my my father my mother my grandfather my uncle were all you know were all journalists so i think it's definitely in the dna and i have that quintessential curiosity and interest in people that i suppose characterizes journalism above all else and of course that so a life in 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 medicine really suited me and the reality was that a life in emergency medicine In other words, the the accident and emergency part of the front line, which is, you know, always hectic. It's the trenches. It's a place where for people, they say traditionally people with very short attention spans, you know, slightly mad and very short attention spans who want action. They want the adrenaline, the dopamine, the quick fix and then moving on. And that really, really suited me. I think that's why I stayed in emergency medicine, which, of course, is also an incredibly exciting part of medicine. You know, we're always driving progress in, in huge parts of medicine, like stroke care, heart attack care, trauma care, child care, you, you name it. But emergency physicians and nurses are forever trying to fix things uh, in, in, in the system. In addition to that, there is a huge social justice aspect. They say they say all medicine is political because as long as Mrs. Murphy in, in you know, in Knock Nahini doesn't have the same as Mrs. Murphy in Bannon Lock or Mrs. Murphy in South... South Hill doesn't have the same as Mrs. Murphy and Stillorgan. You know, medicine will be political, healthcare will be political. And I suppose I am a bit of a political animal and I've always been agitating uh, and I suppose I, I would be described or would have been described as an activist in, in current parlance, uh, agitating for better resources, for more public understanding of what it is that we do and why there are difficulties in terms of overcrowding and long waits in emergency departments because of the, the want of resourcing and, and from for many other reasons.
1: And by having such strong opinions, Chris, and, and not being afraid to speak out, it has landed you in, in in hot water from time to time hasn't it
0: yeah without a doubt i mean i'm uh, i'm I suppose I'm famously polite in in private uh, and in public. I like to think. I mean, I had that beaten into me. I'm, I, I mean, courtesy is an absolute uh, hallmark of my of my existence. I'm also fundamentally, as I say, a, a journalist. So I'm very, very, very interested in communications, which I write uh, letters and opinion pieces and uh, um, I, I've done a lot of media work over the years. But it's all because I, I, I'm I'm battling away for a a public understanding and a political understanding of the of the terrible difficulties we face uh, at, at the front line. And, you know, there's no doubt that I'm, I'm just a human being. And I suppose about ten years ago, I was at peak burnout. I was absolutely exhausted. I was running around two or three hospitals. I had sort of two or three jobs I Had four children, a mortgage uh, battling from morning, noon and night in massively overcrowded Uh, A&E departments in Cork, and I I had this infamous um, interview on the Pat Kenny Show in 2011 on the day of the Manx 2 air crash disaster at Cork Airport. Uh, I'd basically been invited to to contribute to the Pat Kenny show in the Metropole Hotel in Cork that morning, entirely coincidentally, and I was basically sitting on stage, about to be interviewed, when Pat announced that there had been some reports of a, of a crash or an incident in, in Cork Airport, and of course I was immediately on edge because you know, emergency departments are the hub for major incident responses. You know, if there's an air, an air crash or a train crash or a bus crash, you know, it, it, it comes the the response basically comes from the fire service, the ambulance service and the emergency departments in, in, in any city. So I was on edge. I was exhausted. I was, you know, very, very sort of angry at the conditions in the emergency departments that, that I was working in. And I suppose I, I let fly. I, I you know, for one of the few times in my in my existence, I absolutely let fly. And when Pat asked me, you know, you know, what are the problems in emergency departments beyond a shortage of beds? Because everybody knows there's a shortage of beds. And he said, but beyond that, what other problems are there? And I I said, you're absolutely right, Pat. There's far more than just shortage of beds. We need more leadership from, for example, senior managers or chief executives. They need to be in the emergency department day in, day out, as they have to be in the NHS, where, you know, rules have come in that if a patient waits more than four hours in an A&E department, you know, there are sanctions against the management. And that had cleared the waits in Britain entirely, uh, almost overnight, in, in you know, in the early noughties. Uh, I said, you know, we have to st- stop referring everything and anything or anything and, en- and everything to the AE department. You know, we cannot act as an outpatient clinic, as a second opinion service, as a scanning service, as a homelessness, re- uh, you know. Um, Sanctuary and so on and so on and so forth, and people just wandering in to get, you know, their tattoos sorted and so forth, because that is the current reality. You know, the 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 emergency departments of our hospitals have become have become the sort of single portal of entry to the health service. As you know, the many of the community access points, you know, uh, have sort of dwindled and withered and closed. I mean, in, in in my day, in my in my very in my youth as a first year doctor. Uh, GPs would refer patients from the community directly from their surgery into the wards of, for example, Wexford Hospital. And I'm afraid I, I basically let fly about all that. Uh, I let fly about productivity. You know the fact that some some locum doctors would see only two or three patients in a whole eight-hour shift. When it, when, as I said, when I was a baby doctor, quote unquote, what I said when I was a first or second-year doctor, we would have to see eight, ten, sixteen patients in 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 in, in a similar period of time. So anyway, between that. I mean, the jigs and the reels uh i i said my piece and then, then i rushed off back to cuh to help sort out the major incident which went you know reasonably well there was there was there were there was a terrible tragedy at the airport a lot of people well several people lost their lives but the hospitals had responded well the, the ambulances the pre-hospital emergency teams had all responded well and i had a an enormously busy day both in cuh the main hospital and then at the mercy my other hospital. Uh, And after that, I went to a a funeral up in uh, up in Connell or Nina, rather. And uh, so I had a very, very busy evening and the following day, the world fell in the top of my head basically the the president of the irish medical organisation uh emailed me and said they've had an unprecedented number of calls complaining about what my my language and what i'd suggested in terms of you know so you know they, they said suggested that i mean calling my colleague lazy which i certainly hadn't been uh, i was merely re- reflecting on the difficulty with locums as a result of the interview uh, i was i was the subject of of an onslaught of uh, complaint and abuse, frankly, from some GPs, from some trainees online. Uh, And my life was made miserable for for quite a few years.
1: Yeah, I mean, that must have been awful. Um, I mean, what was what was the working environment like? I mean, you know, were you seen as kind of the anti whistleblower in a sense that, you know, were people did people believe, you know, that the points you were making were fair, that they had to be said and perhaps d- didn't like the fact that somebody had stood up and and said these well, things. The,
0: the tragedy, Siobhan, is that I have yet to meet a non-medical person in Ireland in the last t- 11 years who doesn't agree 100 percent with what I'm saying, with all the points I've made. And in addition, the other big point I'd been making at the time was that I, I I'm beginning to believe that every medical graduate in Ireland should do six or 12 months in the front line in, in Ireland, in the health service frontline, whether it's general practice or the emergency department or even community psychiatry. Because of the shortages of the staff, it's so difficult. Um, and I have done a very great deal to encourage them, to train them, to improve their terms and conditions. I've, I've, I've helped to build new emergency departments. I've built education centres. I've created training courses that are regarded have been regarded as state of the art. But the problem was that for the last 10 or 15 years, Many first year doctors are not, you know, not working in our service. They're going straight down under to Australia or New Zealand. And many of them then spend a year or two or three before they come back. And my difficulty is that I think um, you need first year doctors in emergency departments because you need their energy. And one of the points that uh, really I found very crushing was that young people, in any walk of life you need to understand that older people need them around and older doctors and older nurses need student nurses and student doctors or young, you know, young nurses and young doctors around them because they, they, they rely on their energy and their enthusiasm. And for me, the ideal working place is where you have the expertise of, of the experience and the older veterans combined with the energy and the enthusiasm of the youngsters. But that was something that was lost in 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 in, in the outcry. Uh and, and even though I, I refined my suggestion, I suggested that well, maybe if people if maybe if we waive the HPAT, you know, the the wretched HPAT test to get into medicine in Ireland for those who agree to sign up at the other end for six months or twelve months, that that, that might work. And I still suggest that. And I still think that somehow we're going to have to work out a way of getting more young graduates into our A&E departments and other parts of the front line, because frankly, the the shortage of of medical and nursing staff is probably the the greatest problem that the health service faces. And of course, we're seeing it it writ large now with the the COVID related shortages of staff. And we're we're seeing, in a sense, a, a, a sudden acute amplification of the thing I've been talking about for the past 25 years.
1: And so when we look back say at the, the last 10 years since since you know that you did that interview Chris and then you retired early um you did return back into uh, your field during the pandemic and how was that for you
0: So when I went back to the Mercy last year for a few months in 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 the midst of the first wave of, of of COVID, um, it was it was wonderful because I had kind of slunk off after thirty five years of practice in the front line. I feeling a little bit humiliated, feeling frankly defeated by by the system, and feeling that I had let people down. You know, because uh, you know guilt is a, is I suppose is is a, is a major feature of of uh, you know, I suppose of, of medical perfectionism. And uh, it, it was wonderful to go back. I mean, the warmth uh, and affection of the welcome I got back in the Mercy Hospital, uh, and the, the smiles and the just the enthusiastic camaraderie was 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 really a joy. And it was really an antidote to the sort of crushing disappointment I had experienced a year or two previously when I'd had to when I'd had to leave. So it it was wonderful, uh, and it reminded me that you know when. You know, when you're not burnt out and when you're not exhausted, that it really is a wonderful existence. It is a really a wonderful battle that, that you know, the, the medics and the nurses and the radiologists and the radiographers and all the other staff are conducting in the health service frontline. It's something, frankly, which I'm, I'm, you know, I'm quietly proud.
1: I guess just finally, Chris, what advice would you have for somebody? listening to you talk and considering a career in medicine. What kind of uh, knowledge would you impart now uh, after after all your decades in that career?
0: Well, paradoxically, although I have, I suppose, it d- described my own failings. Uh, you know, timing is everything. And when I started in a career in emergency medicine, it was a brand new type of specialty, you know, in the, in, the, in the 70s and 80s. And when I came back from the NHS back in 1999, there were only about a dozen consultants. Now there are close to 100, I think, uh, and many, many um, trainees who are training in emergency medicine. And the calibre and the quality of our trainees and our consultants is is, is, is a wonder to behold and um, the the, the progress we've made in the last 20 to 30 years is absolutely fantastic. And with the development of the trauma centers and the special pediatric emergency departments and the urgent care facilities and all the other developments like, you know, scanning within the emergency department, the overnight stay wards in the clinical decision units, the outreach work that's going on in Vincent's and CUH and other such places where, you know, emergency physicians go into the houses of, of elderly people who've had a fall or or a sudden ailment and actually avoid admission in about eight or nine cases out of 10. I mean, there's so much good stuff going on. So basically, I would say my problem was that I, you know, I, it, it, my, the timing wasn't great. Uh, and I was one of the last consultants who ended up having to work in three hospitals rather than in one. It's, it's hard enough to work in one, never mind three. And that, 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 that really was the kind of killer blow, having to work in three, I think. So now I think it's the ideal specialty for people who are full of energy, full of a- ambition, who have perhaps a streak of the social justice warrior in them, people who want to fix things quickly, people who have curiosity in spades, and people, as I say, who have a natural kind of good Samaritan within them. It's a very, very exciting field of nursing and medical care, and I couldn't recommend it more highly.
1: And that was Dr. Chris Luke and his new memoir, A Life in Trauma, Memoirs of an Emergency Physician, is published by Gill. I'm Siobhan McGuire and today's episode was presented and produced by myself, researched by Tabitha Monaghan, with sound design by Gavin Hennessy. You can follow the Indo Daily wherever you get your podcasts.